so good to be with you again. I always enjoy the opportunity to, to be with this church and have a, another like-minded church in the area to serve with. And it's uh, amazing that you know, Pastor Joe and the team is going down the same missionaries that we support. I think we went down there last summer or summer before. And so um, it just a, isn't it a joy to know that we have the same Lord and the same Word and we can worship Him together in spirit and truth. And so we look forward to doing that this morning. I'm especially glad to be here on time this morning. I wasn't sure that was going to happen. I have a newborn, a two-month-old, and his schedule does not always fit with ours. And uh, so we left a little bit later this morning, but to my surprise, the service started a little bit later also, so got here in plenty of time. So I invite you now to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 13. We'll be looking at this wonderful text of Scripture, but also a bit obscure and strange at parts. 1 Kings 13. Adele Ralph Davis, a commentator on 1 Kings, tells the story in his commentary of a baseball game that happened in 1915. It was a game between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was happening in St. Louis. It was the seventh inning. There were two outs, a tied game. St. Louis was up to bat. There was a rookie on the mound. His name was Ed Appleton, pitching for the Brooklyn Dodgers. The Cardinals manager was in the dugout. His name was Miller Huggins, and perhaps seeing the tie game, seventh inning, there's a runner on third, looking to gain an advantage in the game and bring the game to a closure and win it. Huggins sees Appleton, this rookie, this new guy on the mound, and maybe thinks that he can take advantage of this guy. And so he calls out from his dugout to the rookie pitcher, Hey, bub, let me see that ball. Rookie pitcher, not thinking much more of it, looks at the ball and tosses it to the manager. But timeout had never been called. Ball was in play. And so Huggins simply steps out of the way, lets the ball go past, and the runner on third trots home and is the winning run for that game. Appleton was taken advantage of by a shrewd manager in a baseball game. I mean, a baseball game in 1915 that is lost to history to us. I mean, it's the most insignificant thing to us. And yet there in the heat of the moment, he would pull out all kinds of tricks to try and win that game. And this serves as a powerful illustration to us. If some manager in 1915 is willing to tell a simple lie to win the game, a baseball game, we must realize the kind of battle that we are in with our great arch enemy of Satan, who is the father of lies. He will pull out all the stops, bring out all kinds of deceit and bribery and deception to try and win his game. We know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We know that our battle is against the father of lies, the one who is a murderer from the beginning. And how much more will he be willing to pull out all the stops in this kind of battle for eternity? And the battle is raging regarding the truth. It always comes back down to the truth of God's word. Are we willing to accept God's word as is given in its clarity and its power and the conviction with which it comes? Or will we attempt to follow after the deceitfulness of sin, the lies of the world, the temptations that help us rationalize ourselves in our way of living? That pitcher, that rookie pitcher, Ed Appleton, should have known the rules. 
The rule book was not unclear to him. The rule book is very clear that the ball is in play unless a timeout is called. God's word, likewise, is very clear. His rule book is crystal clear. And so we find that we don't disobey due to a lack of clarity from the word of God. We disobey because we are deceived or rationalize our way out of obedience. And the word of God is a treasure to us to call us back to this kind of mindset. The Old Testament is a treasure trove of stories and illustrations of truth that help us to be reminded of how significant the battle that we are in is and how clear the word of God is. And so we're going to look at this story of a, of a prophet who calls out a king for his lack of obedience and then the prophet is called to account for his lack of obedience. And to look at this story to draw out truths for us at this very day to live a life of obedience and commitment to the clarity of the word of God as we live our lives. So may the Lord help us to draw from this the spiritual truths we need to learn for our own lives. Let us pray and ask for his help. Lord, we know that even without your help, we, we can never put into practice the things that we learn. And so I pray, Lord, that your power would come through your spirit to illumine your word so that we might walk in truth instead of deception. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Kings 13, let me read to you verses 1 through 6, and we'll try to unpack the whole chapter with some quickness. 1 Kings 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. We could put a heading over this section as the clarity of the word of God. The clarity of the word of God. Now we've jumped here into the middle of a book and so we need to bring out some of the situation of what's happening. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that this, te this text is happening right after the division of Israel. It had been a united kingdom under Kings David and Solomon and Saul. But it came to a point because of Solomon's disobedience, his heart went after other gods. God decreed that the nation would be split in two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And God had called out a man, Jeroboam, to be the king of the northern kingdoms. And in chapter 11, he makes a profound promise, the Lord does, to Jeroboam. He says in chapter 11, verse 36, 
to his son, Jeroboam's son, I will give one tribe that David, excuse me, to Solomon's son, that David may all, may, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. Verse 37, speaking to Jeroboam. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and you will build and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Jeroboam has been promised a great promise of a kingdom, a lasting kingdom, if you will simply follow in the ways of the Lord. And so Jeroboam takes the kingship of the northern kingdom, chosen by God to be that king. And though there's this political schism that happens in the nation of Israel where the southern kingdom is now under one king and the northern kingdom of another king, there's one schism that was not to happen. There's to be no theological schism. Because while there can be multiple kingdoms and multiple political rulers, there is only one God. And he is God of every nation. He is God over the universe. And so as the nation is divided, there is no legitimacy to beginning a new religion because there's a new nation. Yahweh God must remain the God of the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom. It is to remain the same. The same religion, same law, same God, same priesthood, same feasts and rituals. But Jeroboam and his foolishness at the end of chapter 12 has his heart struck with fear. As he begins his reign over the northern kingdom, he falls into this folly of considering that he has now this new kingdom, but people are going to continue to go down to Judah to worship at the temple, and he begins to fear in his heart that people will leave his kingdom, and he won't have a kingdom anymore, even though God had promised that he would have one. And so Jeroboam strikes out on his own, leaving the security of God's authority. And he comes to his own solution, which is to create his own religion. He leads the northern kingdom into a train of apostasy. He creates two calves. He pulls an Aaron and creates these golden calves that will act as the gods of this new kingdom in the north and he sets one in the northern part of his kingdom and one in the southern part of his kingdom and says to the people here are your gods O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and not only does he create these new idolatrous gods but he institutes his own temples he creates his own priesthood he creates his own system of feasts he creates his own religion and he even kicks out all of the Levitical priests. In Second Chronicles chapter 11, it says, verse 14, The Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so you picture this kingdom within the very first king, totally apostate. 
the priests have left, the godly persons have left, and all that's left is this shell of a false religion that worships a fake God with its fake priests and its kind of fake king. And this kingdom is totally bereft of any true worship of the true God. And this is a clear disobedience to the clear word of God. Jeroboam didn't disobey because it was unclear as to what he was to do. God had made it plain by his law. The very first two commandments are this. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall make no graven images. Jeroboam breaks those laws right at the outset. Not for lack of clarity, but out of fear in his own heart for things not being in his control. And so that's the setup for our text as we come to chapter 13. And right off the bat, there is an indictment upon Jeroboam in verse 13. A man of God comes out of Judah. As if to say there is no man of God in the northern kingdom of Israel who has the guts or the commitment to the Lord who can come and call out Jeroboam for what he does. And so from the southern kingdom comes this man of God, nameless prophet. And he comes by the word of the Lord and he comes to this feast that's going on. And just picture in your mind what's happening. Jeroboam the king is inaugurating his new religion with his new gods at his new temple with his new priesthood. There's kind of a party going on, the celebration that's happening. There's probably crowds there and it's probably kind of this excitement of this new era for this new land. And Jeroboam's leading the festivities and the people are throbbing around these sacrifices that are being made to their new gods. And in the midst of this sacrificial offering and these celebrations that are happening, in the midst of this feast that he institutes at the end of chapter 12, comes this lone man of God from Judah, a prophet who has no name, perhaps weaving through the crowd, coming up to seek Jeroboam's audience. And he comes up and he speaks in a manner that's totally distinct from the rest of the crowd. And he calls out against the altar and says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice you on the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. It's kind of a good way to kill a party. And that's exactly what this man does. Fearing neither the crowds nor Jeroboam, he calls out against the altar. Now we might expect that he would come and he'd call out against Jeroboam for what he's doing, but he calls out against the altar and he makes this prophecy for what's going to happen 300 years in the future. As he calls out against the altar, he draws attention to that point of somebody's religion, the altar, which is the intersection between God and man. It is where man brings his sacrifices and where God either accepts or rejects those sacrifices. And the man of God calls out against that item and declares that it will be defiled by a future king, Josiah, who will come and defile it in such a manner that those fake priests Bones will be burned on it. That's an unclean sacrifice. That is a way to to defile the altar, to show that this religion is totally corrupt and bankrupt of any credibility in itself. And that's what is declared by a word of the Lord. And this is exactly what happens. 
In 2 Kings chapter 23, Josiah, the last good king of Judah, does exactly this to the T. It says in verses 15 and 16 of 2 Kings 23, Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled and burned down, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. So it happens just as it is said, just as God declares. It is clear, it is precise, it is exact, and it happens 300 years before the events actually happen. God's word is clear and it is declared. But if you're standing there and from Jeroboam's perspective, here's a man at the top of his authority offering these sacrifices in the midst of his people, instituting this new religion, and he has all this authority, and just this lone man of God comes and declares this kind of obscure declaration. So what is it that Jeroboam would do? Why would he think that this is true, that this would actually happen? Well, the man of God gives a sign that this is true, that this will happen in verse 3. He says, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. So to give verification that this is not just some man-made prophecy, the man of God declares that there will be something that will happen that will show that this prophecy will come to pass. Well, Jeroboam, not one to be intimidated by a man of God who declares the word of the Lord, not one to submit to God's calling to repentance, not one to submit to God's law, exercises his authority. Here's the saying of the man of God. And Jeroboam stretches out his hand and says, seize him, thinking that he can flaunt his power, point at this man of God and have him captured as if you could tie up and bundle up God's words so that it has no authority and no application at all to you. Jeroboam stretches out his hand, demonstrates his kingly power, and God, as if to say that he will not let his prophet be silenced, as if to say his word will come to pass, shrivels up the king's hand. God will not be overpowered. No human king and none of us certainly can overpower the clear word of God. And so as Jeroboam stands there with all of his authority, he has his hand shriveled up so that he can't even draw it back to himself. Jeroboam is humiliated at the inauguration of his new religion, showing that the Almighty God has supreme authority over this man who has rebelled against him. He can't even tell the singular man to be captured now because his hand is shriveled up. Jeroboam is now humiliated, but it doesn't end there. Because in verse 5, it says, The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Further humiliation. What a bummer end to Jeroboam's festivities that he could stand there with a shriveled up hand and then his altar crumbles. And I don't take this to be some minor event. 
This altar is crumbled, perhaps a thunderclap from heaven, but ashes are scattered and rocks are split. This altar crumbles to the ground that Jeroboam had erected, and it is done, it's decimated, and it gives verification and validation to every word that the man of God just spoke. And Jeroboam there, humiliated with a shriveled hand and a broken altar, the entirety of his religion, that intersection between God and man, that altar, that point that shows that the religion is worthwhile has been crumbled and the ashes scattered. According to Old Testament law, you're supposed to take the ashes of a sacrifice and you're supposed to handle them properly and dispose of them in a clean place. To have them scattered across is to show the utter defilement of this religion. The utter worthlessness of it. God has bankrupted it. Every hope of any sacrifice that it was legitimate is now completely gone. It's worthless. And I think this gives us pause to consider the worthfulness or the worthwhileness of our own religion. The, the worthwhileness of anybody's religion has to be measured by the sacrifice that's made. We can work all kinds of efforts into our lives. We can give all kind of effort and strength and power and activity in our lives. We can make all kinds of sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. But at the end of the day, the question is, has the Lord accepted your sacrifice? Has he accepted your offering to him? Or is, his, is your altar, is your sacrifice going to be scattered abroad like Jeroboam's was? That's the ultimate question. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, we know that our sacrifice is legitimate. It's the only legitimate sacrifice that the world has ever known. Our altar is the cross of Christ, and our offering is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are not the ones who made that offering. Jesus Christ gave his life up for the sheep. God himself is the one who was pleased to crush his son. God himself was the one who made the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when Jesus spilled his blood, it was not defiled. It was not scattered abroad in a sense that it would be unworthwhile to the Lord. When Jesus Christ made his sacrifice, it was totally accepted by God. It was the only sufficient payment for sins. Jesus Christ upon the altar of the cross was completely accepted by God. And the way that we know that is that on the third day, Jesus Christ burst forth to life again to show that he had conquered sin and death, that he had gone before the Father, making the sacrifice, and that God had given his stamp of approval to his Son and accepted him as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. If you have any other offering to offer the Lord, any other sacrifice that is not the Lord Jesus Christ, it will end up like Jeroboam's altar, broken down, defiled, scattered abroad. But Jesus Christ is our sacrifice, and he has been accepted. And we have confidence before the Lord that our religion is true because we put our trust in Jesus Christ and his blood. Jeroboam being brought to the utter humiliation of having a shriveled hand and a broken down system of worship now recognizes that he has only one place to turn, and that's to the mercy of God. And he calls out to this man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored. Although Jeroboam recognizes he can obtain some mercy from the Lord, he, he doesn't seem to recognize this in a, a very personal way because he still calls upon the Lord as your Lord. 
this is not a, a personal repentance, but it is a recognition that he needs mercy. And so he calls out, and the Lord in his mercy restores the hand of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is humiliated and is reliant upon the mercy of the Lord, and God kindly restores his hand. We need to note that all of Jeroboam's flagrant disobedience here is not due to a lack of clarity of the word of the Lord. It's been crystal clear. been crystal clear in the law, crystal clear when the Lord called him to be king, crystal clear when the man of God spoke to him, and yet Jeroboam insisted on his own way, insisted on disobedience out of fear that he would lose his grip on his kingdom. And we need to recognize that our disobedience does not stem from a lack of clarity of what God has said. It may be a lack of familiarity with it. It may be an out-and-out rebellion, not willing to submit to his law and his commandments. But let it not be said that our disobedience is due to a lack of clear speaking on God's part. He has spoken, and we need to listen. So that's the clarity of the word of God. The rest of this chapter, though lengthy, we could kind of sum up as the battle for the word of God. The battle for the word of God. We know that from the beginning, the very garden that God created, there was the battle over the word of God. Would Adam and Eve believe the word of God or would they believe Satan's lies? We know that the tactic of the enemy has always been to throw deception and uncertainty upon God's clear word. And our tactic as followers of the true God needs to be battling with the truth and discerning truth from error. And as we follow this man of God through the rest of this chapter, he really serves as an illustration to us of the different kinds of temptations that come our way and some of the tactics that we can employ to fight against temptations that come up in our own life. The things that he fights and the things that he experiences are not altogether different from what we experience. Although there's a lot of uniqueness and and kind of interesting events that happen in this man's life, at the core, the challenges that he faces are akin to our challenges to fight, a, fight for the truth against the lies of the world and against Satan. So this chapter gets really interesting. If you read this passage before, you know that some strange things happen. And let me just walk through the rest of the story because it's interesting. We won't have time to go into everything for, in detail, and there are some questions that will linger. But the man of God, after he is interacting with Jeroboam, is offered by Jeroboam to remain and to come to his house and receive a gift and be refreshed. And the man of God says, no, I can't stay. God has commanded me to leave and not eat or drink anything here, but get back to Judah. And so he goes. But as he's going, he's another so-called prophet, though he's a false prophet, hears of the events that just happened at Bethel and wants to meet this man of God. And so he goes and he meets this man of God and implores the man to come and have lunch with him. The man of God initially resists, but then this other prophet speaks up and says, well, an angel of the Lord told me that you need to come to my house. And so the, the prophet, the man of God says, okay, and goes with him. And then while they're having lunch, the true word of the Lord comes to this false prophet and tells the true prophet that because you've disobeyed God, you will die. 
The true prophet packs up his things, leaves, and is met by a lion on the road, is killed. The lion stands next to the body of the dead man and then next to his donkey. Then this false prophet comes, gathers up the body of this man, and buries him, and then requests that he be buried with him. Not your everyday children's story in Sunday school. But there's lessons here for us if we will be good students. And so let's dig into what happens and why it's happened. We'll rewind a little bit and look at what happens with Jeroboam's interaction with the king. As this battle for the word of God rages, this man of God faces the temptation to disobey through bribery. The temptation to disobey through bribery. The prophet gets an immediate test to his fidelity to the word of God. When Jeroboam entreats the man to come home with me, verse 7, and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. That would be tempting, wouldn't it? To go with the king, the reward would be no small token. It would be a large and sizable gift. Go to the king's house and enjoy refreshment before returning home. Now, Jeroboam's intentions are not clear from the text, but knowing the character of the man, I doubt that they are pure. I highly doubt that Jeroboam is simply trying to give this man a break. Jeroboam, in all of his corruption, perhaps sees that this man has won the day and wants to get him on his good side, and so offers him a gift, trying to get him to come and be with him and be a part of his kind of crew and a part of his charade. It's a bribe to try to get this man of God to defect to his side. The man of God will respond to this temptation of bribery, much as we are tempted, as sin speaks to us and offers itself to us a better experience, a better situation. If we will simply go and tell a simple lie or, or break God's law just a little bit, if we will simply give in to selfishness or give in to anger, it promises us that it will turn out better for us than if we follow God's ways. It promises us a reward of an easier life or a better experience or an easier job if we will simply give in to the deceits of sin and a bribe is offered. Sin always offers a bribe of something good that will come with it. And sometimes you get a gift when you sin, but you'll find that as you unwrap that gift, it will be bitter in your mouth and bitter in your stomach as it bears its fruit of death. And so the bribe always brings forth death. And this man of God is a stalwart man at this point. And he says to the king, verse 8, this is a wonderful response. If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. Isn't that a wonderful response? If we simply draw out from there the phrase, I will not, for it was commanded to me. How many temptations can we respond to in that exact phrasing? I will not, for it has been commanded me by a word of the Lord. We can say truly the living God has spoken to me by his spirit-inspired scriptures how I am to live and I will not follow that sin. And that's what this man of God does. He says, I will not. 
It's been commanded to me. Again, the clarity of God's word. He knows exactly what he needs to do. It's not left open to interpretation. He knows he can't go in because he's been commanded to go home quickly. Now, this is, this is a clear command that he obeys. It's not given, or there's no reason given for why this command is given. And in some ways, that's the kind of authority that we sit under with the Lord. We oftentimes want to know why we need to do something, and that's helpful. But let's not forget the absolute authority that God has over everybody's life. He has no obligation to give us a reason for why we need to obey Him. The reason is, He is God, and He maintains all authority. That's always the trump card for why we ought to obey. But God in his kindness does have good reasons for why he tells us to do what we are to do. He's not arbitrary. He always has perfect and wise and good reasons. And this reason for the man of God, it's not explicit, but I think there's implicit reasons for why he is to do these things of not drinking water or staying. I think this is a picture For this man of God who carries the message of the word going into this apostate nation, condemning a false religion, he's not supposed to stick around and have lunch with everybody and say everything's okay. He's not supposed to stop and have fellowship with false worshipers. He's to get out of there, to leave the word of God like a bomb that explodes and get out because he is not to commiserate with the corruption that is happening there. And so he gets out not to have fellowship and then not to return by the way you came seems to be a picture of repentance. That word return is the same word for repent. It's used 16 times throughout this passage. And it's, it seems to be an illustration of what repentance is. Repentance is not going the same way that you've always gone. If you do the same thing that you've always done, namely walk in sin, then you're going to keep sinning. But to return a different way is a picture of repentance. To not go the same way, to be on the same track of sin in all the same ways that you've always gone. Repenting is going the opposite way, going a different way than you've gone before. Go the Lord's way, not the sin's way. And that's what the man does. He obeys the word of the Lord and he goes the other way. He doesn't succumb to the bribery. I will not, for it has been commanded me. Then he falls into another temptation. This is the temptation to sin through deceit. The temptation to sin through deceit. Story's not over for the prophet. As he goes, this other prophet hears about all that happened. This old prophet lived in Bethel. And why is this prophet living in Bethel? I don't get the impression that this old prophet is a very good man. If he's staying at the center of false religion and he didn't go to call out Jeroboam, I don't see this man being a good man. And his sons are there, perhaps partaking in the celebrations of this new religion. But this prophet seems interested in what has happened there. His sons come back and tell him what's happened and This prophet wants to find this man of God. And so the sons tell him the way to go. And 
Verse 13, the man says to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went after the mount of God and found him sitting under an oak. And we pause at that moment and we wonder, why is the man of God sitting under a tree? And the answer is not given to us. But I think it's fair to say it wasn't a good idea. Bethel is only 12 miles from Judah. He had a half a day's journey to get home. It doesn't seem like he needed to stop and sit and wait. His commands were clear. So this was not good and it didn't end well for this man of God because he meets this false prophet and they interact with each other a little bit. In verse 15, this false prophet says, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. So again, it's clear. He knows what he's supposed to do and he tells this false prophet what he's supposed to do. But then comes the wrench. And now comes the part that kind of trips us up and maybe even upset us a little bit. Verse 18. This old false prophet said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And then as they're sitting together at the table, the word of the Lord comes to this old prophet who brought him back and And he cries out, verse 21, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Verse 23, after he had eaten and drunk, saddled his donkey. Verse 24, he went away. A lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road. And a donkey stood beside it. And the lion also stood beside the body. And we might put on the brakes and say, wait a second, it's not fair. This guy does the best job out of anybody. Why is he the one that gets killed by a lion? Why not Jeroboam? He deserves it more. This false prophet, why not him? That doesn't seem right. It's not fair. He got lied to. He was tricked into this. It's just not right. It's not fair for him to get this end. Well, we need to think about this in a couple of ways. First, what should this prophet have done, has done when this old prophet comes to him and tells him an angel of the Lord spoke to him? Well, there's a couple of things he could have done. He could have said, how do I know? How do I know a prophet, that you are a prophet? How do I know that an angel spoke to you? And why would God speak to you a word that directly contradicts what has been said to me by him? Paul said in Galatians, if even an angel from heaven preaches to you another gospel, let him be accursed. The word of God was clear to this prophet. He should have known. Second, and this is personal, if you think that you can make it through this life without being lied to about the things of the Lord, you're in trouble. This prophet was flat out lied to. 
And there are times when we will be flat out lied to about the things of the Lord. It will seem compelling. It may have the ring of truth to it. It may seem like everything about it is true, but how do we discern? God's word is clear. He has spoken with clarity. He has not left us without witness and testimony. He has spoken to us by the prophets of the Old Testament. He's spoken to us by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks to us through the spirit of scripture. We measure everything that anyone says about God and about Jesus Christ by the standard of truth, which is the scripture, which is God's revealed and clear word. And if it does not match up with that, it is a lie. This prophet should have known better. Lies or bribery, he should have known better. And so, because of the responsibility of this man to carry the message of God, he meets a hideous end. Imagine what would happen if this guy, this prophet, goes and has lunch, even though he's been explicitly told not to, and then he goes off and goes home like nothing ever happened. It calls into question the whole veracity of the message that he had just preached at Jeroboam. But the Lord is so concerned about the truthfulness of his word that he sends a lion to kill this man in such a way as to show that God is still in control of the message and of this man's fate. And so this lion stands next to the man and stands next to a donkey. And if you know anything about lions, they just don't stand next to dinner and dessert without eating. And so there this lion is showing by God's sovereign hand that God has his hand on the death of this prophet. And it lends credibility still to the message the prophet preached, even though that prophet disobeyed. God is that concerned about the truthfulness of his word, that he will bring a man to death to confirm that it is true. Unless we think this is unfair, God did so much more with the death of his own son, being willing to bring his own son to that death to show that his word is true. And so that's why this man dies, because he disobeyed and the question of God's word was called into question and he needed to verify it. The prophet hears what happened, understands that this is of God, goes and gathers the body, buries him, mourns for him, lays him in his own grave, wants to be buried with him in his death, it says in verse 31. And then this is the culmination of it all, verse 32. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. That's the end of it. This whole story is building up to the culmination of the conclusion that the word of the Lord shall surely come to pass. If God has spoken, it will happen. If God has spoken, it is true. 
If God has spoken, we need to obey. If God has spoken, we need to respond. And God has indeed spoken. He's spoken to us by his son. We need to listen to him and follow him. There will be some who come and try to bribe us away from the truth of God's word. We must resist and say, I will not, for God has commanded me. There will be some who come and straight up lie to us about God's word. And must say, I will not believe it, for God has spoken to me. If we disobey, if we follow the lies, this is not a story telling us that we're going to be eaten by a lion or killed by a lion, but it is telling us how serious the Lord takes his word and how serious the Lord takes commitment to it. We need to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who, when he was tempted, resisted. He was not swayed by the deceit of Satan, Satan manipulating Scripture. He knew the right interpretation of Scripture. He knew he needed to worship God alone. He knew that God alone would provide for him. Jesus Christ is our model. Unlike this prophet, he fought the temptation. He was faithful. He's our model. We follow after him. May the Lord preserve us from the lies of this world and the lies of the enemy. Let us pray. Father, we need your help. We know the world is just throbbing with lies, throbbing with bribery. We know how much you value your word and how kind you've been to give it to us. Father, would you keep us from stumbling and help us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our one example who never sinned. Lord, we know that we will stumble and we thank you for your mercy on us, that you are patient with us and kind. But Lord, help us to be devoted to the truth. May we know your word better and better. Father, may we soak it in. I pray that we would not uh, grow deaf to it, hard-hearted to it, indifferent to it, but we would soak it up. We would love it. We would baste in it, Lord, and, and just be saturated with the word of God. It's such a gift to us. I thank you for this church. I know that is built upon your word. And thank you for Joe and Stephen and those who preach and teach, who teach the true word of God. May you continue to bless them and help them. And may we be committed, Lord. May you preserve us all from dishonoring you by following the temptations and the lies that are out there. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.